y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Regardless if we acknowledge it or not, the Chinese Communist Party is a self-serving aggressor towards its neighbors in Asia, its puppet governments in Africa, and its own people. And yet, we as consumers, academics, entertainers, and business owners in the West empower the dragon, the mythical monster that the party sees itself as. Joining us today is Joshua Phillip, a journalist who specializes in monitoring what China gets up to, both externally and internally, to help us try to get a sense of how the CCP, with technically no official political power in America and other countries, is shaping and controlling our lives more than we think. Can you talk about how companies in the West, if they want to do business in and with China, they end up, in a way, doing the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party. So the, the Chinese Communist Party has a very different way of approaching business than we do in the West. Of course, before Deng Xiaoping, right, when they did the economic reforms in China, under the Chinese Communist Party, all businesses, all industry was controlled by the PLA, People's Liberation Army. When they started, quote-unquote, you know, privatizing it, what they did was created a pseudo-government called the State Council that the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, still oversaw. And they put all these state-owned enterprises under the State Council. They found a way to maintain the communist system through the corporate structures. So you have people at the top, say the CEO, executive branch, board of directors or whatever, who are all Chinese Communist Party members. You maintain the payments to the Chinese Communist Party through the tax system, so on and so on. Any company with over 50 people needs to have a Chinese Communist Party liaison. Through the laws of the Chinese Communist Party, they're able to control the companies down to the most minute factors. And so even though it has the illusion of being, say, a capitalist, free, free economic system, it's, it's very much a communist system still. And for companies doing business in China, they need to abide by that system as well. This means, for example, uh, if you're a tech company allowing the Chinese Communist Party to have access to your source code. This means sharing data with the Chinese Communist Party. This means cooperating with them if they need, say, something for law enforcement if you, say, run a social network. But this also means engaging in some of the direct censorship, some of the framing of topics, issues such as not calling Taiwan a separate country, calling it a province of China, not recognizing any kind of, how should I say, Hong Kong independence of any kind, not recognizing Hong Kong as necessarily being too separate from the CCP. So five no-go topics in China, the main ones are Taiwanese independence, democracy in Hong Kong, persecution of Falun Gong, freedom in Tibet, and the persecution of Uyghur, Uyghur Muslims. And so these companies have to abide by this when they're in China. If you want to go back a little further, this ties into the origins of the concept of political correctness. Now, in the West, when we think of politically correct, we think social justice issues, 
not, for example, saying racist statements, things like that. In its origins, though, politi- political correctness comes from 1967 from Mao Zedong, who was the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. And the idea of political correctness was it is a moral system, the new system of morality, not based in religion or in tradition, but instead on whatever political issues the government is pushing at any given time. So politically correct means you're following the political line. And under the Chinese Communist Party, that meant following whatever social issues Mao Zedong was pushing at any given time. So if you support his, say, killing of intellectuals, then you were politically correct. If you stood against it, you were not politically correct, and you could be persecuted. And this could change week to week. Exactly. And even in the U.S., we've seen the idea of what's politically correct and not politically correct change at least year to year. Honestly, I mean, some of the issues Trump is pushing for, like his line on illegal immigration, you can find almost exact statements from Barack Obama (laughs) when he first came in making the same position. Political correctness is not a stationary moral system like traditional value systems would be, like whatever you, you know, Christianity, Buddhism, whatever you practice. It, it is something that can change on the fly based on whatever political issues are being pushed at any given moment. And so the Chinese Communist Party uses this still according to its original interpretation that companies need to abide by the Chinese Communist Party's systems of whatever is considered moral or immoral at any given time. Can you give some actual examples of U.S. companies being detrimentally complacent with some of the harmful policies of the CCP? One of the worst is when technology companies go over there and give their source code to the Chinese Communist Party, and then China turns around and builds a product on that source code to compete with the company they took it from. Google going to China, for example, and then suddenly Baidu comes out, and Baidu is the Chinese search engine based off the Google code, uh, competes with Google. Google is eventually leaves somewhat intentionally, but evidence suggests maybe was forced out just through the tightening of the economic news. These companies have to know that giving up their source code is removing their value to the Communist Party, which you know will cease to do business with them when they've taken what they wanted. That's true. You have to understand on a deeper level, though, that they're looking at a five-year outlook. This isn't necessarily corrupt companies. It's corrupt executives. If you're an executive and you're going to be in for, you're only going to be on the job for, say, three to five years, and you have an opportunity to stuff your pockets as much as you possibly can in those three to five years, you don't care what happens beyond those five years. I mean, if you're a moral person, you care, but a lot of these guys aren't always like that. You're going to do whatever benefits you for the time you're in, and then once you're out, whatever happens, happens. And so a lot of companies that have gone to China make decisions that are good for the short term but very bad for the long term. In your mind, does any of this bowing to the CCP ever amount to treason? Very well could. It's not just U.S. companies. European companies, for example, selling dual-use technologies to, say, Iran that are then used in its nuclear weapons program. There are companies that sell equipment to China, which then makes its way to North Korea. Yeah, there are all, all kinds of different ways that technologies that should not be given to these to countries like China, to Iran, to North Korea, even to Syria, 
make their way there through through what they call dual-use technology. So I'll sell you advanced materials, right, that are usable in nuclear weapons, and I'm selling it to one of your government branches, but on the books I'm saying it's for dental equipment. There, there have been actual cases of this happening. I'm selling you engine materials, claiming they're for your, say, public enterprises, but you're using them in your jets, and I'm well aware of you. You're using them in fighter jets, and I'm still selling them to you. There are cases of this, of companies doing this, and it happens, unfortunately, pretty frequently. There have also been cases of Western companies selling technologies to China or cooperating with Chinese authorities that have led to human rights abuses of political dissidents or political prisoners. So that that happens as well. Have any of these companies ever been prosecuted or at least publicly shamed? Yeah, there, there was an issue a long time ago with, I think it was Yahoo, providing information to Chinese authorities on a Chinese dissident. I can't remember what it was. I want to say it was a democracy activist who was imprisoned, and I believe he was tortured. There is information that Cisco Systems, and they've been sued for this, by the way, provide the technology to the Chinese Communist Party that it then used to persecute Falun Gong and other, other people who are religious believers in China persecuted for their just believing in religion, allegedly knowingly provided the technology on the idea that it would be used for that. I think the the court's decision, if I remember right, this is something that happened in China and we don't have jurisdiction. It's something ridiculous like that. And so some of these companies have gotten off scot-free for doing things that, in my, you know, really they should have been charged pretty heavily for crimes against humanity, in my opinion. I think, at least as Americans, we'd rather not know how some of our favorite products are produced or are made so cheaply because of the human suffering that that might be on the other end of it. Do you think that's why companies don't fear any public backlash or economic consequences? I'd say that's part of it. I, I would say that's actually one of the lesser ones. I think people these days are becoming a little more conscious with where companies are choosing to manufacture products and what goes into those products. That's I think I think that's already started to change. There's issues on the right and the left, if you want to define it like that. On the left, unfortunately, while, while people do care about human rights, they they don't necessarily care about communist systems or totalitarian systems. When you talk about socialism, socialism was merely the totalitarian state used to establish communism. It was just the system used to achieve communism. And you look at Lenin, what he said about it, you look at I mean, even Marx in terms of in terms of these stages of societies. I mean, this is what it was. The idea that totalitarianism is somehow a good thing is beyond me. So a lot of them don't want to criticize the communist system in China. When it comes to the right, they talk about free enterprise. Uh, the issue is, is that some of these companies have become so big, they're more powerful than governments. When a company becomes as powerful as a, as a government, as a, to the point where it's... Uh, its income is higher than the GDP of an entire nation. And it's doing things that are extremely unethical and uh, abusive of basic rights of people all around the world. I mean, where do you draw the line? There has to be something in place. The problem, my understanding, is the the corporatist system that was created uh, under, I think, Lyndon B. Johnson, who was a fascist, 
And I mean, keep in mind, too, fascism was based in socialism. It was one of the interpretations of socialism. Mussolini was the second most popular socialist in Europe before, you know, Hitler came around and made socialism look bad in that regard. I mean, this, this is all, all the same system used in different ways. But the, the corporatist system eliminates accountability in terms of what the business does. And that, that, that's the issue with it. There's, there's no legal liability for the decisions the company makes. It eliminates personal and legal accountability. And so these companies, they, they do sometimes really terrible things. The argument for doing business with countries that oppress their own people is that it will improve the people's material existence and eventually they'll push their government for democracy and liberty. Do you buy that? So when, when Bill Clinton went to China and gave China most favored nation trading status, when Nixon opened up trade with China, on both cases this was the idea that engaging with China would make them more free, so on and so on. That not only did that not happen, but the opposite happened. The Chinese Communist Party became even more oppressive. It just became cleaner on the surface. It wiped the blood off its face for the, for the world to see and but kept doing exactly what it was doing behind the scenes. Not only did it not make a difference, it began forcing other countries, foreign companies, to kind of participate in these things. It, it's forcing companies to censor. It's trying to get governments to abide by its way of doing things, what they call the China model. Not only did it not make China more free and democratic, but it made the rest of the world less free and democratic. Well, I think those in favor of trading with China, Cuba, Vietnam, or wherever would say, hey, look how the Chinese live now since we started trading with them versus the North Koreans, where we don't. Right, a little more complicated than how it appears on the surface. So the Chinese Communist Party takes credit for the, the new China, as they call it. A lot of this is based on false history. China, before the Chinese Communist Party, was already moving towards westernization. You can go and read travelogues from, say, the 1910s or late 1800s, and you'll find plenty of examples of that. If you were to go to Hong Kong during the early 1900s, it, I mean, it was a British colony. It looked like a western country. And that lifestyle was spreading throughout China, cars and shops and cafes and all these things. The Chinese Communist Party stripped away everything the Chinese people had, destroyed their history, destroyed their systems of values, and then gave them a little bit back. When it gave them a little bit back, when it opened up, say, the ability for you to start your own business, it then claimed responsibility for the economic flourishing that took place afterwards. I mean, even moderately flourished, nothing like a Western country, just a little bit. In other words, it stripped them of everything they had, gave them a little bit back of what it stripped from them, and then, took, then claimed that it's this grand power for the benefits that came about after that. Uh, when it comes to North Korea, China keeps North Korea from collapsing. The North Korean regime would have collapsed long ago were it not for the economic uh, support of the Chinese Communist Party and the protections of the Chinese Communist Party. It's also feeding the whole nuclear weapons program there, facilitating the transfer of different goods for it, supplying food, oil, you name it. A lot of authoritarian regimes have been able to continue functioning only because of the support of the Chinese Communist Party or the protections of the Chinese Communist Party. Other examples would be um, Sudanese regime and the, the genocide that took place there, many other cases in history. 
recently it's been brought to light that using certain cell phones manufactured in China, in fact, pose a security risk. Can you explain why? So recently, warnings went out about uh, cell phones manufactured by Chinese company ZTE, uh, that these were security risks. This is a, an ongoing issue, not just against ZTE, but also against Huawei, uh, which have both been identified as security risks by the U.S. government, but also um, uh, Lenovo. The background on this gets a bit complicated. You can go back and read government reports on this from, I think it was 2010, 2012-ish, I can't remember. But long story short, there have been ongoing concerns about Chinese manufactured technology, including, say, Lenovo laptops, you know, off-brand Chinese cell phones, so on and so on. A lot of this ties to threats within the supply chain. So if you buy a smartphone manufactured in China, even if the smartphone itself is fine, within the chips on the phone you have firmware. Firmware is like the software that exists at the chip level, not at the interface level, so you, you, you'll never see it on the phone itself. But there can be vulnerabilities built into that that can tap into, say, your contact list, listen in on your calls, you know, relay your text messages, these things. And there have been a lot of cases of cybersecurity companies analyzing Chinese manufactured cell phones and finding that Say the phones were relaying data to Chinese security services. There have been many cases of this. There have even been some really bizarre cases of Chinese technology doing stuff like this. There was a case several years ago. I don't want to try to remember the year. It's around 2014-ish. When Chinese manufactured irons and electric kettles were shipped to, I think, Russia, and they found that the weight on the shipment was off. When they inspected the package, they found that the kettles and irons had additional chips that had been glued inside of them. And these chips, if you plug in the device, would search for open, unsecured Wi-Fi networks and, and infect your Wi-Fi network. Jeez. Um, yeah. There have been really wild cases like this. But on the more technical level, you're looking at Huawei, which one of the main things it does is internet infrastructure. So internet relay switches, cables, these kinds of things, managing landing stations for, for data, undersea cables and stuff like that. If you control those, you can monitor all data going through any kind of internet infrastructure. It doesn't matter how secure your computer is or how secure your phone is or whatever. If it's going through that, all data is being monitored. And... Um, I've done articles before talking about how many of the landing stations in China have uh, military presence of known groups involved with Chinese uh, signals intelligence operations, namely the General Staff Department, Third Department. Yeah, generally speaking, these technologies are fundamentally insecure, and even according to Chinese law, they're required to be. As Chinese manufactured technology, they are required to grant that type of access. Maybe most Americans could care less whether China's government has access to their technology, but to business leaders, politicians, the military, folks in the sciences, this could be real trouble. What can they do to protect themselves? Not to make people too paranoid, but there's almost nothing you can do. In my line of work, 
if I need to have a secure conversation, it means that I will leave my phone in, that, in another room and I will not have any technology present. When you're dealing with people in, say, security industries, this is often a requirement. If you need to have a secure conversation, no cell phone is allowed in the room. Even turning it off does not shut that off. Wow. This is something that needs to be addressed at the government level, and I think Trump is working on that. And it, it does impact Americans if you do business, if you are involved in film, if you do anything that in any way involves the Chinese market. Even getting to the point where students can be harassed for making comments about China. This is one of the big issues they have right now in, say, Australia, where the Chinese Communist Party has a lot of influence. Chinese students' associations' influence over professors' influence, influence over the schools can prevent people from speaking at the universities publicly. Uh, it can pressure Chinese expats from talking openly at the schools about what they really feel about their country. I mean, you name it, right? If, if you're a an academic and you write a book and you want to sell it in China, if you have a history of saying bad things, maybe they pick that up and you... You won't be able to sell your book in China, things like this. If you're an actor and the entire film industry does, has massive business in China and you've made comments that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like, it will derail your entire career. This is how the Chinese Communist Party exports its censorship. There was even a case in Australia where Reader's Digest had a short story. It was a fictional story, but in the story... If I remember right, the mother of the main character practiced Falun Gong and had, you know, been persecuted. And the book talked a, bit, a bit about the persecution against Falun Gong. Even though the book was not being distributed in China, even though the, the Reader's Digest edition was not being distributed in China, it was being printed in China. And the book publisher said they could not print it. Reader's Digest ended up pulling that story out of that issue to appease the Chinese Communist Party so they could get it printed. Otherwise, they'd have to look for another printer. Wow. And so it doesn't matter sometimes, even if you're not doing business in China, through all the, how should I say it, all of the additional channels that whatever you're doing is tied to, it can, it can also impact you. So this is something that if, if we allow to continue as it's currently going, can and very likely will impact you in the future. Recently, the CCP has implemented on their citizens what is called the social credit system. Can you explain what that is exactly? The Chinese Communist Party has built what it calls the social credit system. And this is a smart city technology that draws relations between data, essentially. Now, what does this mean when it's applied to what they're using it for? It means that everything you do as a person is tracked, logged, rated by the central authorities of the Chinese Communist Party. If every person you're friends with has a score you, ha you have a score based on how good of a citizen you are according to their whatever standards they currently have in place. Every person you know, your friends, your family also have a score. 
if you have a family member with a low score, their low score will impact your score. If you're friends with someone and they have a low score, it will impact your score. If you have a high score, you're allowed to travel, you're allowed to start a business, go to school, and so on and so on. They even have, say, dating apps on your phone that you can access if you have a high score. If you have a low score, you can't travel, you can't even rent a bike in some cases. You're denied access to basic services. It's a system that encourages you to behave like a good and proper citizen according to the, say, Chinese system of what they call political correctness. It pressures you to forcefully censor or correct, I guess you could say, your friends and family if they start falling out of line. Right. So, I mean, there are some things we would argue are good, like, let's say, if you commit a crime, like, you steal something, your score is lowered. So there are some basic law enforcement systems involved with this, but there are also things, like, that fall in the mid-range. For example, you're unruly on a, on a bus, and people, somehow that catches up with you and you get a lower score, and suddenly you can't use buses anymore. And on the more extreme scale, let's say you, you're a Christian, you're a house Christian, you don't believe the Chinese Communist Party is above God, because that's essentially what you need to do if you follow their official state-run version of Christianity. Or you're a Catholic, and you don't view the Communist Party as being above the church. Well, then your, your social credit score will be lowered as well. Maybe you'll face persecution, maybe you can be imprisoned, and your score will impact your friends and family. This is also the case in China. That's such an incredible amount of power that knowing human beings will certainly be corrupted. For example, an official just doesn't like you, or you're not willing to have sex with someone in power, or an official is bribed by a person to ruin the credit score of another person. There are some people who believe in this kind of totalitarian system where they think maybe it's okay if the government controls every aspect of your life, but who's to say the government itself is going to be morally higher than you are? They're not some supernormal beings. They're ordinary people just like you. In China, they don't have democracy. How do, how do people get into political positions? You get there by doing favors and scratching people's backs. A lot, a lot of times you can only rise up through the system through corruption, which is how it is. And so a lot of these officials are extremely corrupt. A lot of people get their ranks by participating in different types of abuses, including severe human rights abuses that moral people would not participate in. The, the people calling the shots in China are not given their positions in ways that we in the West would imagine people are given political position. And these are the people who are controlling what's good and what's evil, according to the Chinese Communist Party's new system of morals. And you need to abide by that under their system if you want to have any kind of freedom in your life. And they're, they're trying to export this system as well. This is, when they talk about the China model, this is what they're talking about. Do you see the Chinese people ever getting to the point of saying enough is enough and taking to the streets again like they did in 1989? It, it is happening. It's happening on an extremely large scale on a daily basis. It's just not being covered in the news. This is also one of the issues the Chinese Communist Party itself needs to deal with very soon. From our sources at Epic Times, we understand that this is one of the 
big internal issues that Xi Jinping, current leader of the Chinese Communist Party, is looking at. China could go in two extremely different directions right now. This is going to fall on which path Xi Jinping chooses to take the country in. Now, if I can explain briefly on background, there are two forms of social stability. There's social stability through the internal restraint of the people. You have people who believe in morals. Maybe they believe in some kind of religious system that teaches them that killing and stealing are wrong. These, these kinds of ideas that we take as being basic truths that really are rooted in our cultural understandings or our religious understandings. Each person has their own set of values, depending on their culture, their heritage, um, their religious beliefs, and their upbringing. When you destroy that, which is what the Chinese Communist Party did through its various movements, the Cultural Revolution, I think, being the strongest in this regard in terms of the destruction, Communism in general is based on destroying all the pre-existing systems. The Communist Manifesto itself says that communism destroys uh, religion and all morality. It destroys the family, you name it. The idea of achieving communism is a state where you have wiped out all pre-existing concepts, values, morals, systems, everything. What, now what happens when you do that to a person you have a person with no historical sense of right and wrong, with no historical concept of internal restraint. Their entire mentality is materialism and personal interest. Um, ironically, because they try to portray themselves as being, say, giving and benevolent, although if you look at any late-stage communist society, that whole idea of sharing goes out the window pretty quick when the first famine hits. Communist systems maintain order after they destroy all these things by creating a totalitarian system, a government that can act itself as God. You overthrow the seat of God and you put yourself there. And that's essentially what the state of socialism is, where you have a government that controls every part of the society. If you want to talk about whether they've ever achieved communism, debate away, but they typically don't want to get rid of their dictatorship put it that way. Now, the, the second form of order, which I was getting into now, is when the totalitarian system controls every single thing you do, manages every decision in your life, you know, basically controls you like a puppet throughout the entire course of your life. What school you go to, what job you have, what you can and can't do, what you can and can't think, so on and so on. This only works to the extent that the ruling regime can monitor what you do on the minute basis. It only works within the boundary of what they can see. So when you're behind closed doors, when you're not being monitored by the government, it's only then that you have your own freedoms, and chances are you're still going to do things they don't want you to do. The issue that, that communist societies have is that people get pushed to a state where they stop caring about life and death. Life becomes so painful, that even, if they, even if they do live well in some regards, that they can't do anything, they can't think for themselves, and they reach a state where they stop caring about the, the threat of punishment. And it's then that people will act out, they'll go on the streets and protest, they'll stand in front of tanks, 
it's then that the communist system, whatever whatever country it may be, begins to realize that its end is near. China has reached this state, so they have two paths they can go in. One is try to find new ways of monitoring people, try to extend their reach into even more minute elements of people's lives that they can try to control, which they're doing, unfortunately, right now through the social credit system. They're even building new technologies that have facial recognition systems in schools, for example, things they believe can allow them to monitor people's thought processes. I mean, horrifying stuff like this. This is one possibility that China could become even more communist, that um, Xi Jinping could bring it in that direction. The other direction is that Xi Jinping might try to revive the values, the cultures, the beliefs that the Chinese Communist Party destroyed. And if he can revive traditional values, then you bring back that element of internal restraint. You begin empowering people to, again, have the ability to make moral decisions on their own. This is the other element of stability, which for the Chinese Communist Party right now, stability is their biggest concern. That latter path, if morals could return to China, maybe if the Chinese Communist Party could give up its power I have heard rumors that she has considered getting rid of the Chinese Communist Party. Then China could become a positive and powerful player in the world. And in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with having a powerful, benevolent nation. A country like that would benefit the world. But the other path of the even more authoritarian Chinese Communist Party is one that would make the world a very dangerous place. Everything we've talked about today is obviously a point of passion for you. How did you develop what I would call a healthy paranoia of authoritarianism, which many in your generation do not share? In fact, according to polls, many millennials would like to implement a stronger central authority in America. Long story short, I'm a former leftist. I was an anarchist, pretty hardcore anarchist, and um, lived in a intentional community for anarchists and realize that it does not work. The issue with anarchy is, is that from disorder, whenever when there's no order, anything can be created. The, you get two people joined together, they become the most powerful group in society. If you get a, a small clique of people, they automatically become the leader. When, you, when you're in places like that, you find that everybody wants to be the leader. It's a uh, maybe something in human nature. The first thing you have when you're in a, an anarchist society is the idea of how do you create positive leadership quickly. And there's this odd race to kind of achieve that. I realized very quickly that system doesn't work. Now, you have to remember the history of anarchy. Anarchy in its original form was also based off the whole communist ideology. The original idea of anarchy was that through personal anarchy, you could create intentional communism. And the idea was that inside yourself, you just eliminate all concepts and morals and these things. And you can achieve the state that communism aimed to achieve on a personal level. That process is extremely destructive to a person. It, um, it's a process that destroys your, your internal system of values. And you, you find the people who go down that road become very dark people. 
I, I think with me, I had kind of a, a moral awakening. I got really into Taoism and Eastern beliefs, became a, a pseudo-monk for a while, mm-hmm. had a, a mentor who mentored me and taught me some traditional values. And, you know, he was a monk I met when I was traveling and uh, it really changed my life. And it was after that that got my life together and went back to college and started practicing Falun Gong, also called Falun Gatha, which is a traditional Chinese system of, say, moral refinement. It's based on the ideas of Zhen Shan Ren, which are, Zhen is like truth or truthfulness or being a true person. Shan is compassion or kindness. And Ren is the idea of being able to endure things, uh, the idea of forbearance. Maybe just this process of self-improvement helped me kind of put things in perspective in terms of what is right and wrong in the world and uh, by, say, trying to improve myself. My job with Epic Times started more out of the idea that Epic Times was exposing the persecution of Falun Gong in China. The Chinese Communist Party basically didn't have a reason to persecute Falun Gong. Uh, the only person on the, the Politburo Standing Committee who wanted to persecute was Jiang Zemin, who was the former leader of the Chinese Communist Party. Before he launched the persecution, he tried to find reason for it. Not only could they not find a reason, but they came back and said that Falun Gong actually benefits the country because it was, in, it was improving the moral society and it was also lowering health care costs. You have to remember there were about 70 to 100 million Chinese people practicing Falun Gong by 1999. That was reported pretty widely at that time. I think even New York Times cited that number at the time. When the Chinese Communist Party decided to launch the the persecution against Falun Gong, they didn't have a reason, so they fabricated reasons. This was the original fake news, I guess you could call it. They did false flag incidents, staged events, uh, put out fake reports. They, I mean, you name it, right? They mobilized the entire Chinese media, you know, state-controlled media system to report it, and basically all the Western media had no alternative sources, so they just repeated whatever the Chinese Communist Party was saying. All that stuff has been debunked by this point. The, the lingering perceptions of Falun Gong are still there. People still don't quite get it, unfortunately. What was Jiang Zemin's motivation to demonize Falun Gong, do you think? I can tell you, among Falun Gong practitioners, we just think of jealousy. It's the only thing we can think of, honestly. You know, basically, Jiang Zemin would put out books that nobody would read and nobody really liked him very much. <laughs> Li Hongzhi, the founder of Falun Gong, he'd go to any city and there'd be, you know, thousands upon thousands of people showing up to see him. There were more people practicing Falun Gong than there were Communist Party members. Another big issue. Even though Falun Gong, it wasn't involved in politics. The whole thing was about improving yourself as an individual. When you run into conflicts, you look at yourself and think, how, what did I do wrong? How can I become better in that regard? Right? And it's a process of self-refinement, which is a long history in Chinese, say, religious systems. So in, anyways, I, I got involved with Epic Times because it was the only media covering that. Epic Times was, was, of course, started originally by a small number of Falun Gong practitioners who wanted to create a media that could report honestly what was taking place in China. And, you know, since then, of course, we've become pretty big. We're 33 countries, I think, 17 languages, and fairly big media these days. But I was one of the earlier 
staff on the English side. My job at Epic Times has, from very early on, since about 2008, been uh, investigating the Chinese Communist Party's infiltration of foreign societies. I actually stumbled on this by accident when I was covering some uh, stories in New York. There were groups of people who were attacking Falun Gong practitioners in the streets of New York. I investigated it and found that the groups doing the attacks were tied to the Chinese Tongs, which are like hometown associations or family associations or business associations, some of which had ties to the Chinese Mafia. A lot of Tongs have street gangs that operate under them, and the whole triad system works through this relation between the, the Tongs and the street gangs and different gang factions in different areas that the Chinese consulate general at the time, Peng Kaiyu, was involved in it, that the, and through this uncovered the whole Chinese system for overseas espionage under what we call the United Front Department and the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office. The two of those were not very well known at the time, but I, I did a lot of reporting on them, and these days uh, you can find quite a few news articles, especially in Australia, because this is a big issue there, uh, talking about these organizations. And so my knowledge of these systems, of how communist systems work, come from maybe my own background. At one point in my life, I was kind of on the bad side of things, but turned my life around and hope now to expose these things and help people to better understand them. If you'd like to hear more of what Joshua Phillip has learned on this topic and others, you can find his articles on the Epoch Times website, which is simply epochtimes.com, and Epoch is spelled E-P-O-C-H. Also, you might check out some first-hand accounts of the situation in China by checking out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episodes number 1, 58, 76, and many more throughout our four-year run. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and Podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease!